please. Take a Bible turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, please. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of coming around your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you gave unto us the written revelation of God that we might, in its pages, find a revelation of yourself, a revelation of your Son, a revelation of the redemption that is ours through Jesus Christ. A revelation, Father God, of your will for our lives. And we thank you for your word and its truth. And today, as we open up its pages yet again, we would ask that, Lord, you would guide us in our understanding of its truth. Lord, enable me to have that clarity of thought, that uh, wisdom, Father, to share your word today. Allow me to know what to say and how to say it. And Lord, may uh, you today remove uh, from uh, this time in your word anything of man and that we might just simply see you and receive from you your word as you would have us to receive it. Lord, guide as I preach this morning and use me to your glory. Lord, may we receive from you that which you would have for us through this your word this day. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We left Habakkuk, if you remember, in chapter 2 and verse 1, on the watchtower. It says, I will stand upon my watch, and will set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. We find Habakkuk standing on the watchtower where he's waiting for the Lord to answer his questions, the questions of chapter 1, where he's asked the question, how long? And he's asked the question, why? And he's asked the question, wherefore? And now as he stands on that watchtower, he's in the sanctuary with the Lord, the Lord graciously answers him. And he gives to him a vision that he needed at this time, a vision that would turn his worrying into worshipping. The vision included not only God's words, which is chapter 2, but also a revelation of God's glory as recorded in chapter 3. So chapter 2 and chapter 3 are really the, the revelation of God to Habakkuk. When we believe the word of God and when we behold the glory of God, it gives to you and I faith to accept the will of God. And that's the point here. Habakkuk is going to receive the word of God and he's going to receive a glimpse of the glory of God and that's going to give him the faith to accept the will of God despite the circumstances. When God spoke to his servant here in chapter 2, he gave him three responsibilities. First of all, he was to write the vision. Look in verses 2 and 3. The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the time it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. God tells the prophet here 
And what he's to do is to record the question and answers recorded for us in chapter 1, and indeed what he receives now in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But in particular, here at the beginning of chapter 2, he's told to record the question and answer of chapter 1. You know that he's asked the question, how long are the wicked going to go unpunished in Judah? And God says, not for long, I'm going to send even more wicked Babylonians to judge my people. And Habakkuk then is confused because he doesn't understand how God can be so inconsistent, how God can judge his people who are relatively righteous compared to the Babylonians by the terribly unrighteous Babylonians. And he's left with this question of what's going to happen and uh, not knowing what God's going to say to him. And uh, he asks the question in verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment. And, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and hold thy tongue when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he? He says, I don't get it, Lord. I don't understand how you can allow the wicked Babylonians to judge your people. How does this take place? And so he's to record the questions and the answers of chapter 1 for the benefit of others. That they, that he may run who reads it. Look what it says in verse 2. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. You see, Habakkuk wasn't the only person in Judah who needed the message that he was about to receive. Indeed, the message he had received and the message was about to receive. He needed to share that with other people. He had an obligation as the prophet of God, to proclaim what he had heard to other people. You know, that's true of you and I. We too are not the only ones who need to hear the gospel. You and I here today who know Jesus Christ as a Savior. We can look back on the time of our life where we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God convicted you and I of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And you and I turn unto God for salvation and he gloriously saved us. But we're not the only ones who need the gospel. There's a vast world of people out there who know not Jesus Christ, who have never heard the gospel message. And the, the, the revelation that you and I have received is not for our own personal benefit. You and I have received the revelation of God that you and I might indeed share that revelation with those who need to hear it. So like Habakkuk, who has to take this right down and share it, so to you and I have an obligation to share the word of God. You know, if Habakkuk was to share the message, if he was to make this message available, he first had to see the vision. He couldn't record what he had not heard. He couldn't record what he had not seen. He couldn't record what he had not received at the hand of Almighty God. It's not possible for him to write something down that he has not been given. In order for Habakkuk to write it down, he must have, first of all, see the vision. And the same is true for us. You know, you and I cannot make anyone else see what needs to be seen if you and I don't see it ourselves. It's not possible for you and I to share what we know about God and share what we know about Jesus Christ and share what we know about the Word of God if we don't know anything about God, Jesus Christ, and the Word of God. 
You and I need to study the word. You and I need to understand the truth. You and I need to understand the gospel so that you and I have something to share. As Peter tells in 1 Peter 3.18, we'd be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks of us the reason of hope in us with meekness and fear. We're to be ready to answer them. And the only way to prepare ourselves to answer them is that you and I will study the word of God. We're to rightly divide the word of truth, as we're told in Timothy. That you and I, we're to study to show ourselves a prudent God, a woman who is not ashamed, rightly divide the word of truth, so that you and I might indeed be able to share it with others. We've got to first see the vision, so that we might then share the vision. Now the blessing for you and I is we already have it written down. We're not waiting on God to give you and I some vision as we sit at home or stand here in church. You and I already have the word of God. But we need to study that for ourselves if you and I are going to share it. Back up then had to write it so that it might be made known. It says here unto him, he says, write the vision. He has to write it. Now Habakkuk had to make it known as permanently as possible. God didn't just want him to share it verbally. He wanted it written down. So that indeed, uh, upon tables, on, on tablets of stone, so that the prophecy could be read by all. That this was a, a permanent record of what God had said to him. So as many people as possible could come and read the prophecy. So as many people as possible could hear the prophecy, as people then would read the prophecy. They wouldn't have to rely upon the prophet to simply proclaim it. They could read it for themselves. So he had to write the vision down. And once again, the glorious truth for you and I is we already have the revelation of God written down for us in the pages of this book. This book reveals to us the very character of God. It reveals to us the character of Jesus Christ. It reveals to us the very uh, character of redemption and, re and, and justification and salvation for you and I. We have written for us in a permanent way the word of God. And so you and I have the means by which we can take that which God has written and share the gospel with those who need it. Remember it says in Romans chapter 10 verse 14, how shall they hear without a preacher? It's all well and good at being written, but once it's written, it needs somebody to read it. We have a responsibility to share what we know. Habakkuk also had to make it plain, it says in verse 2. Write the vision, make it plain upon tables. He was to make it plain so that everybody could read it. He wasn't writing code. Okay, this was not some secret code that Habakkuk was writing, and the only ones who could read it were those who knew the code. And you know, the wonderful thing about the Word of God is, the wonderful thing about the Gospel is, the Gospel is not written in code. In fact, we're told in Corinthians that it's the simplicity of the Gospel. Aren't you glad the Gospel is simple? There's not some secret code. You and I don't have to go along to some uh, organization and sit down for uh, weeks, maybe even years, and learn the secret code. And once we know the code, we can then unlock the, the, the treasures of salvation and be saved. Aren't you glad that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God? And the word of God is not given in code. It's given simply for all to hear. 
You know, John 3.16 is probably the best-known verse in the world, but it's also the simple, one of the simplest verses, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's simple. And I'm glad that when God wrote down his word, he did not write it in code. He wrote it for all to see and hear. It's written plainly so that everybody can read it, everybody can understand it, and all mankind can be saved. Habakkuk had to make it practical as well. It says that he may run that readeth it. That he may run who readeth it. Now it doesn't say that he who runs may read it, but that he may run who reads it. The point here is not that a runner may read it, but that whoever reads it may run with it. In other words, that he's to take the word of God, the prophecy, he's to write it down, he's to write it plainly on tables of stones so it's as permanent as possible, so that when anyone picks it up and reads it, they can then run with the prophecy and share it with all and sundry. That they don't need to take the tablet with them to share the message, that they can read the message and then run with the message and tell all. The same is true today, isn't it? You know, the gospel is so simple that when you and I have read it, when you and I have been saved, when you and I know what it is to be saved, the message is so simple that you and I can take the word of God and we can share it with others. In fact, it ought to obligate us to run with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share it with all and sundry. The gospel is so simple, so straightforward, that you and I can go forth and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all and sundry, and we ought to. It ought to move us. As you and I read about what God's done for us, it ought to move you and I to run with the gospel of Jesus Christ to tell anyone who will listen that Jesus died, that they might be saved. In verse 3, we read that the revelation God gave was for a future time and a better future time. Notice what he says in verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So the Lord tells him that this vision that he's receiving, that he's to write down on tables of stone and make it plain for all to see, that those who read it might run with it, is for an appointed time, for a future time, for time yet to come. As of yet, the Babylonians have not come and invaded Judah. The prophecy that God's giving to uh, Habakkuk is about an event that's about to happen, a future event. And while the immediate application of this verse is to do with the Babylonian captivity, the interesting thing about this verse is that the writer of the Hebrews interprets it differently. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews refers it to the return of Jesus Christ. Led by the Holy Spirit, he changes the word it in verse 3 to he. And he applies to Christ. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 37, if you would please. Hebrews 10, 37. For a little, yet a little while, and he that shall come 
will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Sound familiar? Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come and it will not tarry. And then the end of verse 4, but the just shall live by his faith. So the Lord inspires the writer of the book of Hebrews to now change the word it, the word he, to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the prophecy of Habakkuk is as much for us as it was for Habakkuk and the people of Judah. Because the New Testament tells us that the prophecy that's in Habakkuk about Babylonians has a future fulfillment, and that fulfillment is in Jesus Christ and the coming of Christ for you and for me. You know, a discouraged Jew in Babylon, in Babylon exile, might ask the question, will the Lord come and deliver us? And the answer is, yes, just wait for him. Or as it says here in the back of chapter 2 and verse 3, it will surely come and it will not tarry. Along with the scoffers of Peter's day, who wrote, where is the promise of his coming in 1 Peter 3, 3, God's reply is, wait for it, he will surely come. He will surely come and he will not tarry. As the judgment is coming in the day of Habakkuk and it will not tarry, so Jesus Christ is coming and he will not tarry. God will deliver us. Jesus is coming just as God promised. Jesus is coming. We just need to wait on the Lord. You see, Habakkuk here is challenged by God to wait upon the Lord. Because God does not lie. God does not tell untruths. God's telling Habakkuk what's going to happen. He's told him in answer to his question about the sin of Judah, what's God going to do about it? God's going to say, I'm going to send the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are going to judge the nation of Judah because the judgment must begin at the household of God. Let's start with God's people. But rest assured, Habakkuk, know this that that judgment will come by the Babylonians and then God will ultimately deliver you. And we know that God does 70 years later. He delivers them from Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah leads the, the people of Israel back into Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls. They rehang the gates. And the nation of Israel is reestablished. You and I live in a day and generation where all around us it seems like the fabric of society is falling apart. And you and I, as we've said in chapter 1, have often brought to a place where you and I ask the same questions as Habakkuk. We ask, how long, Lord? How long can this iniquity go on? How long can this sitting go on? How long, Lord, are you going to sit back and let the world do what it pleases? And the answer to the question is, God will intervene soon when he is ready Jesus Christ will come again. He will surely come. He will not tarry longer than God needs him to tarry. And the reason why he's not come yet is because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You and I need to wait on the Lord because his will will come to pass. Yet a little while, 
and he will come. But until then, we're to make the gospel known. We have the same obligation as Habakkuk. While he was waiting for the deliverance of the Lord, he was to write the word upon tables of stone. He was to make it plain so that all those who read it could run with it. And you and I have the same obligation. While you and I wait for the Lord to deliver us, wait for the rapture, for that day when we'll hear the, the shout of the archangel, the trump of God will sound, and we'll be caught up together with the Lord in the air. Until that day comes, we have an obligation to take that which is written and share it with the lost and dying world because that's why God is not is tarrying because he's not willing that any should perish. He's giving mankind ample opportunity to be saved. Because God's word is true, he was to write the vision. Not only was he to write the vision, he was to trust God's word. Look at verses 4 and 5. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlarges desires hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and keepeth unto him all people. In contrast here, there's a contrast here between the people of faith and the people who arrogantly trust themselves and leave God out of their lives. Once again, the immediate application of verses 4 and 5 is to the Babylonians. And what we have here is a description of the Babylonian nation. The Babylonians were puffed up. Look at what it says in verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up he was puffed up, he was full of pride, with pride over their military might and their great achievements. The Babylonians thought themselves to be invincible. The Babylonians thought that they could not be stopped. They believed that their military might would give them the victory over any enemy, any assailant that they would come across, they would win the victory. They had built an impressive empire which they were sure was invincible. In order to understand a little bit about their attitude, go back to Daniel chapter 4. Because in Daniel chapter 4, we have the very words of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar makes this statement in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. It says, The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar said, listen, I have built a great kingdom and it's about my might, it's about my majesty. We're invincible. He was full of pride. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud king. The nation was a proud nation. They were puffed up. And they thought that they could do anything despite what God might say. They felt they could do whatever they pleased. And indeed, when they came in and they overthrew Judah, they must have thought that they were invincible. Because even the God of the Jews could not stop him. And you know, this attitude, this, this invincibility, this pride, this being lifted up, 
is an attitude of today. It's the condition of most of mankind today. You know, mankind in general is puffed up with pride and self-sufficiency. Mankind today, particularly in Western culture, mankind today believes that they don't need God. We live in a culture in Australia, we live in a nation that for the most part believes they don't need God. God is out of the equation. And, you know, our politicians may still recite the Lord's Prayer at the opening of Parliament, but how many of them actually believe it? We're a secular society. Mankind in general does not require God. They don't look to God for answers. They don't look to God for leadership. In fact, we live in a society today where whatever God says doesn't matter. The Apostle John warned us against the pride of life that belongs to this present world system in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passed away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This attitude of pride, this attitude that permeates our society today, is an attitude which stands against God and doesn't need God. Pride makes people restless. They're never satisfied. Look in the back of chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he's a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell and is as death. And cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations and heapeth unto him all people. You know, he's restless. He's not satisfied. That was true of the Babylonians. They were not satisfied with what they had. They coveted more. They wanted more land. They wanted more wealth. They wanted more possessions. And therefore, they set out to conquer every nation that stood in their way. They'd come across from Babylon. They'd attacked Assyria and Egypt and now Israel. They were overthrowing nation after nation after nation. They were not satisfied with what they had. They were restless. And therefore, they were given over to wine, says there in verse 5. Yea, also because he transgressed by wine, is proud. Given over to wine, never rest, never satisfied. He's proud, man. Neither keep of the home, who enlarges the desire as hell and is as death. They're constantly seeking for some new experience, some new thrill, some new adventure. He cannot be satisfied, but gather unto him all nations and heapeth unto himself all people. Pride makes people self sufficient and restless and greedy. More than one king, more than one dictator in history has followed this same resolve, only to discover that it leads to disappointment, it leads to ruin, it leads to death. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. That was true of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Nebuchadnezzar was puffed up with pride, and we know from the book of Daniel that God was going to bring him down to his knees. In fact, he was going to make him like a beast of the field. He was going to graze on grass. He was going to be like an animal. God was going to bring him down low to demonstrate that indeed Nebuchadnezzar, the great Nebuchadnezzar, was not invincible, but the God of heaven was all-powerful. And we live in a generation, as I said, that there's no time for God. And the world thinks they're invincible. They think they can go it alone. In fact, they think they have the answers. The truth of the matter is, they don't. And they may feel self-sufficient. They may feel restless. They may feel greedy. But eventually, that pride is going to cause destruction. That haughty spirit is going to bring a fall upon the nations of the world. And we all have to do is read the word of God and know that in the end times, after the church is raptured for a seven-year tribulation, God's going to pour out his judgment upon the nations of the world. And the world is going to know that the God of heaven is indeed in control and sin is going to be judged and wickedness is going to be dealt with. There's a day coming whereby God's going to say enough is enough. And pride will indeed bring destruction. You know, pride is especially dangerous amongst God's people. Because you and I are not immune from pride, unfortunately. We need to remember 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 5, that God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. And therefore, as verse 6 tells us, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that we may exalt us in due time you and I as believers need to learn to, ex to humble ourselves before our almighty God, just as Habakkuk had to learn the same lesson. He'd asked his questions. God had given him an answer. He didn't understand what God was saying. Now God's going to reveal his word to him and reveal his glory to him. And he's going to come to the place where he understands that God is on the throne and he needs to humble himself before a mighty God. And that's where you and I are at, beloved. We need to bring ourselves in a place where we humble ourselves before a holy God so that we may be exalted in due time. Now note the contrast here in verse 4. It says, Behold his soul, this is the wicked, this is the Babylonians, which is lifted up is not upright in him. Here's the contrast. But the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. This is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, and Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. The Hebrews chapter 10 one is the most significant with the context of Habakkuk because Hebrews chapter 10 verses 37 and 38 actually quotes from chapter, three, uh, chapter 2 here in Habakkuk. Habakkuk here is challenged. God, God gives him the reverse size of all this. Yes, indeed, God's going to judge the nation of Judah with a nation that's even more wicked than Babylonians. But understand this. God will judge, and he will not tarry any longer than he has to tarry. And therefore, Habakkuk, you must live by faith. We're saved by faith. And you and I now must live by faith. You know, in the world in which we live, it can become easy to get discouraged, can it? Wondering where is our God? 
I was just talking to a, uh, a fellow pastor this last week, and he was talking about how hard the soil is getting with regard to souls getting saved and how parched the land is. And he was talking about the, the lack of young men who are putting up their hand to go into the full-time ministry and how that the pastors in our churches are getting older, but there's not many who are coming up behind us to take our places. And around the country, there is pastor after pastor who's getting to that retirement age or even older than retirement age, and they have no one behind them, and there's no young men putting their hand and saying, here am I, Lord, use me. And part of that is because we're not seeing a lot of people get saved. The ground is parched. The ground is hard. And we live in a generation whereby um, we're so, so drawn away from the things of God, drawn away to, to world, the world and wilderness. In fact, even Christians are getting caught up in the life that they live and don't have time to give themselves wholeheartedly to God to go and serve him as pastors or on the mission field. And as we look around us, it's hard for you and I sometimes to, to not get discouraged and not become despondent and, and think to ourselves, where is it all going to end? Well, the reality is this, folks. The just shall live by faith. You and I have to live by faith. We have to believe God's word. We have to believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. We have to believe that God will not tarry any longer than he has to tarry. That one day the trump will sound. One day there will be the shadow of the archangel. One day you and I will be raptured and we will be with the Lord forever. But until that day, we have to live by faith. You know, faith believes the message. Faith believes in times of trouble that what we need is to trust God. To live by faith is believing that in the end, God will win the victory. Beloved, we can read the end of the book and we know the victory's ours. That's the joy of Revelation. We're not going to be here for most of the book of Revelation, but the wonderful thing about the book of Revelation is right at the end of the book, we win. The victory is guaranteed. But in the meantime, we have to live by faith. Habakkuk is challenged here to patiently wait upon the Lord. And while he patiently waits upon the Lord, is to zealously proclaim the word of God and trust the promises of God in darkness. It's a wonderful book because the fact is that's the same question that you and I are asking. He's in a, in a position that's so dark and he sees wickedness flourishing and what he sees is God allowing the wicked to flourish all the more rather than even dealing with that and going to use them to deal with the wickedness in his own people and he doesn't understand it. And then God describes to him the Babylonian Empire and their pride and their wickedness and he doesn't understand what God's doing. But God says, Habakkuk, in the midst of it all, what you need to do is live by faith. Zealously proclaim my word. Write it down on tablets so that they that read it might run with it. Habakkuk, be faithful. Proclaim the word. And have total trust in God. Somebody said the righteous man 
exercise an abiding trust in God in the face of all adversity and trial, as well as in every circumstance of life. The righteous man should live by faith. That means that we're to be faithful in the midst of difficulty. Somebody said justifying faith should result in faithfulness to God and his commands. Justifying faith should result in faithfulness to God and his commands. You know, some believers live by devotions or by works or by feelings or by circumstances. But each of these is meaningless, folks, and indeed can be dangerous unless we live by faith. Faith is always the answer. Trusting God is always the answer. We may not understand it. We may not perceive it. In fact, you and I may find it very difficult when we share the gospel for so few want to listen to us. But God didn't say we're to make them to listen. He simply said that you and I are to proclaim it. You and I just need to follow his word. Faith is a lifestyle. But it's opposite, opposite to being puffed up and depending on self. To live by faith means to believe God's word, to obey it no matter how we feel, no matter what we see, no matter what the circumstances of life may throw up against us. You and I simply need to trust God. That's illustrated well for us in Hebrews chapter 11, the so-called faith chapter of the Bible. You know, you read about those men and those women in Hebrews chapter 11, and they, they were ordinary people. There was nothing extraordinary about the people of Hebrews chapter 11. When you read the list of names, whether it be Abraham or Moses, whether it be Noah or, or anybody else, when you read the list of names there in the Hebrews chapter 11, they're simply ordinary people. But every one of them accomplished extraordinary things. Because they trusted God by faith, it says of all of them. By faith. By faith. What made them extraordinary was not them, but their God. You know, David was just a little boy who went up to take lunch to his brothers on the, the front lines of the battle. When Goliath comes out and little David couldn't understand why such a brute as Goliath who hated God and the children of God could have be allowed to get away with what he said. And nobody would stand up. So David says, I've got a great God. Goliath may be big, but my God is bigger. David reminded us that last week. My God is bigger. And so he went out with his slingshot and stone and trusted God, didn't he? And when Goliath laughed at him, David just said, my God's bigger than you. And by faith, he slung a stone that hit Goliath in the head and brought him to his knees. He was an ordinary boy. You think of any one of the characters of the Old Testament. There was nothing particularly special about them. They were simply ordinary people. Joseph was an ordinary man. Noah David, 
uh, Daniel rather. They were all ordinary people, but God used them in extraordinary ways. And the thing that made the difference was they had faith in God. The just shall live by faith. It's been well said that faith is not believing despite the evidence. It's, about, it's obeying in spite of consequences, resting on God's faithfulness. It's just ignoring the fact that we live in a wicked old world and somehow, you know, we just turn a blind eye to it. It's not that at all. It's you and I trusting God despite the circumstance, despite what's going on. We know that God is faithful. The Lord knew that it was difficult for Habakkuk. He knew that times were, going to, were coming for the people of Judah and uh, that were going to get worse. I mean, God's under no illusion. You know, he's not misguided here. He, it's not as though he doesn't understand how ruthless and barbaric the Babylonians are. As he unleashes the Babylonians upon the nation of Judah, it's not because God gets caught out and when he finally sees how wicked they are, he deals with Nebuchadnezzar. It's not that at all. God knew what was happening. God understood the circumstance. God understood how wicked it was and Nebuchadnezzar was. He understood how barbaric the Babylonians were. He knew what the consequences were going to be for the nation of Israel. But God knew he had to bring Judah to their knees so they might cry out to their God before God could show himself to be mighty. But God knew that difficult times were coming. And that's why he tells Habakkuk to write the word on tablets so that those who read it may run, so that those who read it may be encouraged, so that those who read it may be able to proclaim it. He says, listen, the time is coming, not yet, but I'll tarry no longer than I have to, and I will judge. But until then, live by faith. Beloved, as we serve the Lord, you and I will face difficult times. And as the Lord tarries and we get close to the day that Jesus Christ comes, it will be difficult. And beloved, our only resource in this generation is to trust God's word, to rest in God's will, and to live by faith. There is no other solution. We have to live by faith. You see, we live in a nation, in a generation that is just as wicked, if not more wicked than the Babylonians. But the same challenge is given to you and I as it was given to Habakkuk. Go to Hebrews chapter 10 again, please. Hebrews chapter 10. And verse 37 again. Speaking on verse 36. For we have need of patience that God after, uh, that after ye have done all the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. If any men draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, 
but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We need a little patience after we've done the will of God that we might receive the promise because the promise is this, for yet a little while and then he will come. He will not tarry. But in the meantime, the just must live by faith. And next time, I was going to do it today, but I've run out of time. Next time, we'll look at the third responsibility of the prophet, which is to declare God's judgment, which is the rest of the chapter, verses 6 through 19. But today, the challenge to you and I, folks, is to live by faith. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the challenge from your word to live by faith. That, Father God, that you will come, that Jesus Christ will come, and he will not tarry any longer than he has to. But while we wait for his return, we need to live by faith. Commend your word to us, we pray, and bless now as we close with him. In Jesus' name.